You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Angie, and today I'm so happy and inspired to have a real conservation hero. Dr. Ray Wynn Grant is going to be joining me on the podcast. And she is a wildlife ecologist that specializes in large carnivore conservation that includes lions and bears and so much more. And she's also a fellow with National Geographic Society and has made well-known contributions in the area of the human impact on black bear behavior. And Dr. Wynne Grant is also a very important advocate for women and people of color in the sciences. So hello, Dr. Wynne Grant, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. Are you there? Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm really, really excited to talk with you today. Uh, A little bit of a background is Ray and I tried to do this interview a few days ago, but <laughs> my my eight-month-old was having a different idea of what he wanted to be doing during the interview, and it was not napping. And uh, But uh, Ray and I bonded very quickly because she has a 12-month-old and exactly. who is currently napping. So we had a lot of mom science bonding uh, a few days ago. But today, we're going to focus all on her work. And it's just incredible and inspirational. I have goosebumps. I want to hear your story. I want you to share it with our audience. So thank you for being here. And to get started, Ray, do you mind giving our listeners a little bit of a background of how you got started and what inspired you to want to work with animals? Sure. I love telling this story about baby Ray. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, because, and one of the reasons I tell it is because Compared to most of my colleagues, I have a fairly non-traditional path that I've taken to my career. And what I mean is that, you know, so many of my colleagues grew up in nature. So, you know, they have wonderful memories as kids, like hiking and camping or fishing and hunting or, you know, being outside or living in a rural area or whatever, just falling in love with nature at a young age and then really carrying that with them throughout their lives. And for me, it was a little different. I didn't grow up accessing the outdoors or recreating in the outdoors. That's not something my family did. Um, oh, I'm sure you can't tell this from the podcast, but I am Black and I grew up in a Black community, a fairly, um, you know, working class Black community and and culturally that just wasn't on our radar. Um, so I did a lot of traveling with my family. I have an awesome family, really wonderful parents. And we went lots of places, but not usually into nature spaces. Um, So I had a very urban upbringing and I loved that, you know, and I still, I have to say, admittedly, I still love urban spaces. Um, And so I fell in love with nature and really got an idea for my career from watching TV. So, you know, not being in nature, but seeing it on the screen. I loved watching nature shows as a kid. I I wanted to be a nature show host because it seemed like they had the best jobs in the world. I wanted to go to the jungle. That was the thing that I would always say is I want to go to the jungle. I want to be a nature show host and see tigers and jaguars in the jungle. And that's what captivated me. It seemed like an amazing adventure. It wasn't until I was a young adult that I learned there was a science to studying nature and understanding nature and definitely a science to protecting nature. So once that came on my radar, there, it really felt like there was this very purposeful career that I could have, you know, where I was in the places that I wanted to be, but also doing this, you know, very mission driven work of protecting it for the future, um, and so honestly, I didn't have an easy path once I once I discovered my career passion. It was not easy, but it was very clear to me what the path was and what career I wanted to have and the steps I was going to take um, to make it happen. So I feel very fortunate that I have a job that I'm so passionate about that also has benefits to, you know, to the world. Well, Ray, when you mentioned nature shows, right now with my young boys, 
I have to give a big shout out to the Wild Kratts, the oh, cartoon. Yeah. Do your kids watch it? We watch it sometimes. We watch it yeah. sometimes. I have to say, I think because <laughs> Wild Kratts is excellent. And I hear so many families just, you know, rave about it. So it's so well done. We watch it here and there, but I have to say, my oldest daughter is not so into animated nature. She like, she loves the real deal. So she goes for those like blue chip, you know, planet earth kind of style documentaries more than she does, you know, the animated stuff. It's wild. Oh, that's, I mean, it's awesome that we have both of those choices, right? Where the kids today are, are so lucky. I always, I always tell my kids, you know, when I was young, we had four channels and we had to watch what was on it. And of course, now with a lot of the streaming services, uh, kids get to pick a whole bunch. And so do you remember any of the shows growing up that you really loved? Was it more cartoons or more of the nature shows? Definitely the nature shows. Yeah. So anything that showed up on PBS, you know, mm-hmm. the early days of Discovery Channel or Animal Planet or National Geographic, you know, any of those, again, kind of the documentary style things. I used to get little videos from the library, you know, like VS, VHS tapes from the library, you know, of nature content. Um, any of those, any of those, I just, I just ate it up. And and had a passion for that at a young age. Yeah, and I remember collecting the uh, like National Geographic little cards of animals that would come like in a magazine. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, so many fond memories of different media or different sources and ways to engage in nature. Because of course, getting out there and whether you're camping or hiking is a great way, but it's not the only way. I worked right. in Chicago, which is very rural, and a lot of the children I helped educate, the only time they got to see an animal was when they came to the farm in the zoo. And they would just Mm -hmm. love petting the bunnies and feeding the cows and just getting a little glimpse of what animals are like, but that wasn't part of their daily life. So helping to educate uh, children and get them excited about wildlife comes in so many forms. But now, as an adult, you are a fellow with the National Geographic Society, which to me is just incredible to go for. I mean, that's everybody's dream if you love animals as a small child. And so I was wondering if you could touch on that a little bit, like how you got from your college and graduate school career to where you currently are today. Oh, yeah. And I love this story, too. And it's mostly because I spent a lot of time in academia. So there are many different ways to become a wildlife ecologist, but um, a lot of those ways center around, edu- you know, formal education. And that's the path that I took. Um, but after a certain point, so I did, you know, an undergraduate degree, two master's degrees, a PhD, and then I completed a postdoc fellowship. And after that point, I really felt I need something different. I think I need to step away from academia for a little bit. And and that's when National Geographic Society came on my radar. And I realized, oh, they're a grant-making institution. They give grants to scientists and different types of explorers to do work. Let me try that. Let me kind of take this risk and take a few years off from academia and see how I like doing science work in this way. Um and and luckily, you know, Nat Geo in, really liked the, you know, the conservation ideas that I was thinking of focusing on. So there was really great synergy there. And I got a series of grants from them to study, you know, to study a grizzly bear population in Montana. And it was wonderful. You know, Nat Geo, of course, you know, is known for their epic magazines, you know, their wonderful television channel, all their great media content. Um, And a lot of times the science is kind of behind the scenes. So I was able to marry two of my biggest passions, which were doing science research on wild animals and doing some media work, talking about nature on TV, writing about nature, you know, for the public, doing, you know, speaking events and really explaining, you know, science, doing science communication, just just sharing my knowledge. And National Geographic Society um, ended up really supporting my science media ambitions as well. And that relationship started several years ago. It's still going strong. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate, very, very fortunate. I've had so many opportunities. 
Well, and I want to hear about the black bears, but before we get to some of your current research with them in Montana and out West, I'd love it if you could share with our listeners some of your stories about your research with lemurs in Madagascar, and we can't leave out the lions, uh, the research you've done in Africa. Would you mind sharing those experiences? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I'm also happy to say that my new podcast with PBS Nature um, has the the better and more robust version of all of these stories. And so it's been really fun to revisit them. Um, so I have to say, I am so fortunate to have had so many different experiences. So I've, I've been a part of um, several long-term research projects. Um, right now, to, to this day, I'm a part of a long-term research project. But I've also had opportunities to do shorter projects um, that have really expanded my, um, like the breadth of my work and understanding. And one of them was a project I did at the end of 2016 with a big team of researchers from all over the world in a rainforest um, in Madagascar where it was a rainforest that had not been used very much by um, local Malagasy folks and also hadn't been explored by scientists, whether Malagasy scientists or international. And we got this big group together and I was just fortunate to be a part of it to go in and really explore this rainforest to see what was there. So there were botanists who were checking out the plants and there were herpetologists and there were anthropologists and there was me, a large mammal expert. And I had a little team of assistants and we went looking for ring-tailed lemurs. Ring-tailed lemurs are critically endangered lemur species in Madagascar. They're the largest lemurs. They, they have these awesome, almost like raccoon tails that are striped. Um, they're really important seed dispersers, and some estimates suggest that there may be only a thousand of them or so left in the wild. And until we did this survey, we were pretty sure where the last remaining lemurs lived, which which uh, rainforests they lived in. So for this expedition, we went in not entirely knowing whether we would find lemurs there, but hoping we would, and we did. Even on the first week, we started hearing the calls of ring-tailed lemurs. And then the job was to see if we could get close enough to capture one just for a brief enough time to get a little hair sample for some DNA analyses to just learn more about this population of lemurs and maybe if they were different, if there's something unique about them, something that could teach us more about their conservation or their future. And again, I, I detail this story because it is a crazy, wild, like suspenseful story. And I detail it on the podcast. So I don't want to give any spoilers. But I will say that I lived in a Malagasy rainforest for weeks at a time with a big team of researchers being cold and wet and hot and wet and hungry and wet. Insect and bites, and wet. <laughs> all the things. Yes. Insects and leeches <laughs> and, you know, low food supply and fatigue and also a lot of excitement and a lot of energy and a lot of really wild experiences. Yeah. Wonderful nature um, calls when you're sleeping. I always love oh that. Oh my God. I mean, the works, just mm -hmm. the works, you name it, it happened. And, um, and, and it was, it was pretty transformative for me. It was my first time studying something that wasn't a carnivore. It was my first time doing work in the tropics. And, you know, now that it's been you know, five years, I can really see how that experience really set me off. It, it broadened my mind. It helped me realize that my expertise and my work is useful across ecosystems, you know, across sure. species, across the world. And it's really helped me see myself as relevant and important and someone who, who has important contributions. Um, and it's, it's made for some great stories. Absolutely. And Spending all that time in Madagascar, what does the future look like for lemurs and just other wildlife in Madagascar in general? Oh gosh. Well, I you know, I don't want to make anyone feel depressed, but it it's it's tricky. It's really, really tricky. Um, a country like Madagascar has so many different pressures, you know, 
most of their most of the country's economy comes from exports. So they export a lot of agricultural products. And for a country that struggles with high poverty rates, you know, they're really dependent on using the land for agriculture in order to export products to to keep a semblance of an economy thriving. So, you know, from a conservation angle, there's there's a lot of great protected areas in Madagascar that are look like they're going to remain protected in the long term. Whether or not those protected areas are connected to each other remains a question because having islands of protected areas for, you know, especially for wildlife species isn't super helpful. They have to have some type of little corridor, mm-hmm. you know, that connects them. So I would say the connectivity between protected areas in Madagascar will really determine the fate of a lot of these amazing animals. And with that said, it's important to understand that poverty plays such a huge role in, you know, in in people's capacities to really prioritize conservation. Um, You know, another thing that I share in my podcast is a lot of the situations I encountered that really helped me confront some of my feelings about whether to put animals first or people first. And I truly feel it's different in different situations, but in a lot of situations where poverty is knocking at the front door, having a people-centered approach to conservation might not mean that we save the last species, but human well-being has to come into play and has to be a priority. Absolutely. It's a big, big part of the picture. We're we're all in this together, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and now moving towards carnivores, which mm-hmm. uh, is how your expertise started and has evolved from there. Uh, we have to talk about lions. Would you yes. mind uh, discussing some of your research there and and what it was like to spend your time? Oh my gosh! And who doesn't love lions? I mean, African lions are just—they're—they're they're the iconic wild animal, in my opinion. Well, oh and, yes, and I, I've been blessed enough to spend some time in Tanzania and doing a little research and hearing them roar at night when I'm in my tent. Uh, there was nothing like it. There's and nothing like nothing it. like it. And I wasn't fearful because we did have people that were uh, kind of keeping an eye out and making sure um, all of us that were sleeping were were fine. So I had no fear at all. It was just like a beautiful symphony of just power and ah, so impressive. Okay, but let's hear let's hear your story. It's so exciting. <laughs> so I I got my start in um, in my own, you know, doing my own independent research by studying uh, uh, pride of lions in central Tanzania um, as a master's student. And Ooh, I was which working part? alongside, so I was in, let's see, I was outside of Tarangiri National Park in central Tanzania. Perfect. That's, I've spent some time there. It's a, oh, cool. Yeah. It's wow. not as popular a park, but it, I loved exactly. it because it was very, like, we didn't see any other people besides researchers. So it was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like the underused national park for sure. Um, And I was working with the African Wildlife Foundation um, and I had a great experience with them. And I was working with a lot of their researchers learning how to study lions. And in general, we were studying them. I was studying the movement and behavior of these lions as it relates to um, the people who also lived on the landscape who herded livestock. So just trying to understand, you know, where do lions spend time in proximity to the, you know, the herds of cattle? When are they feeding on their more traditional prey? You know, the wildebeest, the zebras, the gazelles and the antelope, you know, when are they targeting, you know, livestock? And, and, you know, this was, a experience that I had that that got me started in some excellent ways because it was very, very traditional. So we didn't use a lot of technology, even though it existed and it could have been used. It was kind of old school um, lion tracking. And it's really special to me because those are the techniques that you kind of never, you'll never lose, you know? So really looking for 
for footprints, you know, and of course, using a GPS device to take the GPS point. So there's a, you know, there's some tech in there. (laughs) But I also learned, you know, during that time that every single lion has a unique whisker pattern. So kind of like human beings. Yeah, how like we have our fingerprints and Mm -hmm. every person has individual fingerprints. Every lion has a unique whisker pattern on their face. And they have these kind of freckles right on their face where the whiskers often grow out of. And it's different for every animal. And so we would drive up in our, you know, in our old Jeep and get as close as we could to the lions. And we get out our binoculars and we would look at them and we would then take out a sketchbook and quite literally sketch the lion's face as best we could to try to identify which one it was. And so I spent months and months getting to know individuals of the lion pride and seeing them in different places and just writing down in an old school notebook. Okay. I saw this lion here. It was resting. I saw this lion here. It was resting. And, you know, spoiler alert, right? Lions do a lot of resting. (laughs) (laughs) We think of them as these like ferocious beings that are always on the go and action, action, action. No, they just sleep. They sleep. It's so funny. I kind of like your cat at home. I always tell people, I must say the last, my third time in Africa, I finally saw them. Now it was uh, towards the evening, they were on a on a road in Kruger walking, and mm. there was probably about ten of them. So walking, it was really walking. cool to see them moving. <laughs> yeah. I think I think they were stalking some prey, so that was fun. But every other time I've seen them sleeping under the shade. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, they just sleep. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, I really cherish those memories because I was doing science and I was collecting data and it was slow and it was methodical and it was mm-hmm. thoughtful. Um, and it was very, very connected to place and land and and people. And it really got me started. And so to this day, and it's many, many years later, more than a decade later, I still study the movement and behavior of large carnivores on landscapes that they share with people. And... That that is still the, the kind of driving underlying theme of my work, and I still find it fascinating. And I and I still think back to, you know, sketching the faces of lions and the whisker patterns, and have using that as my data, you know. And I, I again, it, there were tons of crazy adventures related to that, but there was also a, a really important simplicity to how I got started with my work in Africa, and I appreciate it. A lot of times when I tell people that I watch horse behavior for long periods of time during the day, they're like, isn't that boring watching them stand around, standing around eating grass? And I'm like, no, actually it's not. It's very, uh, very humbling to me and just very simple. And yes, it's fun when they run and play or if the foals jump around and kick, but just in general, getting to know their individual personalities and their movement and some like shade and some have friends and some don't. And yeah, it's the subtle. I think for me, it's an, the subtleties that make it very uh, interesting uh, to really yeah. to really get to know their behavior. And and so now, Ray, that leads me into black bears because I know you're doing a lot of research on them currently and looking into the uh, the impact that us humans are having on their behavior and movement. So, would you mind talking to our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. So, you know, I can geek out about bears for yes, sure. Yes, and black yes, bears in particular. <laughs> but there are a lot of things about them that make them super interesting to study and super interesting to to really get to know and try to protect. And the, you know, the main change that I really had to get used to is that in the United States, black bears are not an endangered species. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not necessarily worried about their status. They're, you know, in most places, their population sizes are increasing. Mm -hmm. And before I studied black bears, I had never studied a species that was doing well. You know, I was studying animals in order to figure out like, oh, well, we got to like really figure out how to save them ASAP. So studying black bears again has really exposed me to bigger picture thinking um, and really like like systems thinking and understanding what's going on in a big picture. And it's allowed me to, to do more proactive instead of reactive work to keep them safe. Um, And black bears are awesome. And I have to say, you know, another thing that really sets them apart from other species I've studied is that they hibernate. 
And hibernation is wild. I mean, it's awesome. And I have to say, even as someone who studies bears every single day, I still geek out so much just knowing and learning about hibernation. And again, I study the movement and behavior of these animals. So when it comes to bears, I do work to um, to trap them and tranquilize them, do a little checkup, and then attach a GPS collar around their neck. So just like a regular collar, but it has a small GPS unit, which sends a signal to satellite up in outer space, which sends a signal back to my computer and lets me know the longitude and latitude and the GPS location of a black bear Um every four hours or so. So I end up getting these huge data sets of location points. But when I put them on a map and I'm able to kind of visualize like, where has this bear traveled on a map? I get this really amazing picture of the life of this bear and almost the personality, if you will, of the bear, you know, where it likes to spend time. You know, black bears are what we call habitat generalists. And that means that they can live in all different kinds of habitats. We find them like at the top of a mountain. We find them in the valley. We find them in, you know, in kind of more tropical wet spots, right? Like there are black bears in the Florida Everglades, you know, and there are black bears in the Sonoran Desert. And there are black bears, you know, in the Rocky Mountains, <laughs> you know, and there are black bears. I study a population of black bears that lives on the central coast of California. You know, they're coastal. Yeah, that's so a, the spirit these, bears, right? Well, spirit bears, yeah, are up in British Columbia and they live right on the water. That's amazing. And they're also amazing because they're white mm-hmm. in color, but they're black bears and by their species. And it's just wild. And, um, and so they're, they're a generalist species, which means we can find them in all kinds of places and they can survive in all kinds of places. So because of that, when black bears aren't surviving or aren't doing well, it's almost always because of people. And I do a lot of work to figure out, well, okay, what pressures from people are they experiencing and how can we change that? Um, in one of my field sites, where I did my PhD work, we were finding that black bears were getting hit by cars sometimes a hundred times a year. Sometimes we were having a hundred vehicle collisions a year with black bears, killing them. And that is something that is terrible for the bears and terrible for the bear population growth, but also really dangerous for people, right? People lose their lives in these vehicle collisions. And there's something to be done there. So my job wasn't to necessarily figure out the entirety of the situation, but to at least figure out like, okay, well, where are black bears crossing the roads? Where are my bears choosing to cross the roads? How frequently are they crossing the roads? And how can we better design road systems and better prepare people to avoid hitting bears on the roads to protect everybody? And, you know, if you had told me, you know, 20 years ago that that's something I would have been studying as a wildlife ecologist, I definitely wouldn't have thought that, you know, I wouldn't have believed it. But there's so much about ecology, conservation, studying wild animals, studying carnivores that is really about society and Mm -hmm. the persistence of these animals through time and how society, human society can work with them as best as possible. And there's a science to that. And I feel really proud that that's part of the science I do. Absolutely, Ray. And I'm, I'm really excited because they've recently approved a land bridge here in Florida where I live uh, for some of the wildlife that is in Ocala National Forest that needs mm-hmm. to move west into where a major highway system is and, and east as well, where another major highway system is. <laughs> and then down in the Everglades as well, where that major, that those two major highway systems kind of don't really come together, but definitely head south. And so I just really look forward to some of these solutions that scientists and ecologists like yourself are putting together. So to make it more, to make it more harmonious and not so one way or the other, right? You know, sometimes it feels like a bit of a privilege to be super myopic about a study because really, you know, conservation starts with people and it ends with people. You know, it's never going to work if people don't benefit from it. And if people, you know, have, have issues that need solving in order to support conservation happening. You know, if it were up to animals, conservation would be the name of the game all the time. 
right? So that's definitely something I've learned is that, you know, although as a scientist, I collect data and I interpret it and I can make recommendations, that applied part, that conservation that keeps these animals around and living and thriving is all about how people feel. And, you know, and there's a different science to that, <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> psychology to that. Sure, sure. Um, but I've, I've definitely, you know, I, I remain very humble in my work because I have learned so much that I can only do but so much. And there's a lot of learning and listening involved in being successful in protecting animals. Well, yeah. And you bring up a really good point about society and, and how they, how you almost have to put people first and last. And so my next question, Ray, is how has this COVID pandemic that has affected everyone for the most part, uh, in some way, shape, or form, how has that impacted your research, yourself, your bears? How is it going? Sure. You know, I, the pandemic has been, I mean, I don't even know if I have proper words for how it's been, but um, it's been traumatic, you know, for our society and for many of us as individuals. And professionally, I, I'm very grateful to say that it hasn't, you know, created problems in my work. So professionally, one of the great things about studying, you know, bears, for example, or mountain lions that I study now is that they, you know, they, they live for several years, <laughs> you know, they live long enough that skipping a year, which is what ended up happening for me, skipping a year of traveling to be with them in the field didn't disrupt my work. Um, not every scientist can say that, you know, I, I definitely have colleagues who, you know, study cells that are only alive or a short amount of time. And, you know, and they have lost tons of data and years of work. And for me, you know, because travel was off limits, because my field sites were closed because of COVID for, for the better part of a year, um, I missed an important field season, but I can make up for that time. And to be completely honest, a lot of wild animals, including the bears and mountain lions I studied, did great without people around, even without researchers around. They were healthy. They were thriving. They, you know, experienced fewer vehicle collisions. I mean, all the things. It appears that they did just fine. And again, I'm just so fortunate that although it wasn't ideal to use to lose a year of data collection, it wasn't devastating to the project. I've been able to pick it right back up with probably a little more energy um, behind my work and keep it going. Well, that's such great news and definitely a silver lining that a lot of the animals experienced a little bit of a, a boost perhaps without all of us humans doing all of our things for a year. Uh, so we'll, we'll be looking forward to seeing how your research shapes up in the next year or two to see what the impacts are now that humans are back in national parks and are back on the road and doing our human things for sure. Right. Uh, he, we have a big responsibility as people. I mean, every single person impacts wild animals in some way, whether it's birds, whether it's squirrels, whether it's marine animals, whether it's bears. I mean, no matter where you live and what you do, there's some way that our day-to-day -day life impacts animals. And we have this tremendous responsibility to keep them at the forefront of our mind as best we can. Absolutely. And I have to talk about this podcast. You've mentioned it a little bit as we've been uh, <laughs> discussing your work, but I really want to hear a little bit more in detail about Going Wild with Dr. Ray Wynn Grant. Can you tell us about the series, how it came about, and what some of the episodes entail. Well, actually, you teed this up so well because my podcast, Going Wild with Dr. Raywin Grant, which is hosted on PBS, um, it came about because of COVID. So there's a wonderful producer at PBS Nature who had this idea early, early in the pandemic that, oh my gosh, everything is so stressful. Everything is so scary. People are freaking out let's create a podcast of just like a nice little walk in nature. Since people can't do their traveling to, you know, national parks and to, you know, natural spaces, 
why don't Ray, why don't we record a podcast where, you know, maybe you're taking us on a walk and we can incorporate some nature sounds. That's how the podcast started. And let I me tell love you, it. it I love it. So different from that. <laughs> it went through so many iterations and we recorded so many different things. And what we landed on over the course of the pandemic was true stories from the field. Okay. So mm-hmm. with my 16 years of doing wild adventures with animals all across the world, I have a lot of really amazing scary, suspenseful, exciting stories from all of that time. And so my podcasts are every episode is a different story of me, you know, on a mission to find an animal or to save an animal or to save myself from an animal or whatever it might be. All of these true stories of my life as a field ecologist. And it's it's great. It's great. And one of the things that I appreciate the most is that PBS Nature really gave me a platform to bring my full self to these stories and to the podcast. So although they all take place within the context of some type of wildlife adventure, I really do share a lot of um, a lot of my personal journey. So a lot of my, you know, self-confidence journey, um, you know, a lot of self-esteem ups and downs. Um a lot of identity and identity politics. So I do speak about being, you know, a black woman and a lot of cases, a young black woman doing this work in these spaces. What's cool about that? What's hard about that? What's confusing about that? What's misunderstood about that? And then I, I'm really fortunate because I have a lot of like really wacky stories of how I misunderstood a lot of things along the way. <laughs> a lot of like cultural misunderstandings, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of embarrassing moments. And it's really cool to include those in, you know, my adventures in trying to track and trap a lemur or a lion or a bear. It's really cool to include you know, who I am at my core in all of these stories. And I I think it's quite amusing. We've been getting awesome feedback um, from the public. Oh, absolutely. And well, I think one of the reasons that really works is giving listeners a little insight into who you are and that uh, science for some people can be very uh, unrelatable or maybe Mm -hmm. even boring depending on your background and your interest. And so sometimes we scientists may not always be like the most effective communicators or storytellers. Oh, yeah. And I I, I always get good reactions when I tell a relatable story, either about my kids or my husband or my time and my times in grad school. I I definitely had imposter syndrome when I was in graduate school and still do to this day in some, some, some instances. And just letting people know that we're real too, that you're, I mean, you're, you have this amazing resume and amazing portfolio and you're so inspirational, but yeah, there's, there's sometimes we're a hot mess along the way. And that's an okay story to share because it, it gives people hope when things aren't going well for them, that they just keep getting back out there and can keep trying or that, that anybody can do this. And of course it takes a lot of, a lot of studying and, and, uh, and hard work to become a wildlife ecologist. But at the end of the day, uh, hopefully, if you work hard enough, you can become that. And then even when you become that, there's still bumps along the way. And when I really hope our listeners will check out Going Wild with Dr. Ray Wynn Grant, because you'll get to hear all about it. And, And stories are fun, too. It's a great way to get people excited about animals, conservation, wildlife ecology. So absolutely. We'll put the link to Going Wild with Dr. Raywin Grant on our show notes um, and, of course, through social media so that our listeners uh, can take advantage of that because it's, it's going to be a lot. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a wild, fun ride. That's for sure. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I can't wait to see what, you know, all these wildlife lovers think of this podcast. And I have to say, it's so awesome that there's so many nature podcasts out there, you know, nature related, wildlife related, conservation related. It's, it's a great community that we've been building. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just fortunate to be a part of it. Well, yes. And that leads me into my next question as well. Um, Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about science and wildlife conservation and ecology 
And whether it's through a podcast or a Zoom meeting or a lecture, how do we make science more equitable and accessible to more diverse groups of people and kids? Mm. Oh, boy. Well, that's heavy. And I do have some thoughts on this for sure. Um, but they're, they're pretty broad. The way I think of it is pretty broad. And it's mostly from, you know, from from the perspective of, you know, of the black experience. Sure. And, you know, what I truly feel is that, it, you know, science has a diversity problem and an equity and inclusion problem for Absolutely. sure. Right? We do not have enough participation and representation of, of different groups of people, especially people of color in the sciences. And the way I see it is that is directly related to the barriers to getting into science that are related to racism. And so what I try to encourage, you know, folks to do is to do anti-racism work, however you do it, Um, you know, especially broadly. So, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of, you know, uprisings and, and, you know, really in your face advocacy and marching and whatnot. And I had to call out, or I, I felt compelled to call out many of my colleagues um, for, you know, doing the women's march and doing the march for science, but not showing up for a march for Black Lives, you know. And and that there to me is a huge disconnect because Black folks are women, Black folks are scientists. I am living proof of that. Um, and if we are amplifying women's rights and amplifying, you know, the role of science in society, we're still not solving the, the, you know, the race gap there. If, if we're not also amplifying the needs um, of people of color and black folks in particular. So I'll say this another way. Um, I really appreciate how so many organizations and institutions and especially, you know, kind of science and outdoors groups are really doing a lot of work. I'm seeing a lot of work being done to make, you know, the outdoors accessible, safe and inclusive and, you know, doing anti-racism work in the workplace. But I also feel it's so important for people to expand that to just every aspect of society, you know? So if you have a really good diversity, equity and inclusion initiative in your workplace, that's excellent. But it really doesn't make a difference for your employee if then when they leave work, they get shot by the police (laughs) on the way home, right? It it doesn't matter unless we're really doing this at a societal scale. Right, all inclusive. It's very, Mm -hmm. of all inclusive, it's very hard to be a Black person and have the, the mental space and capacity to think to yourself, well, what kind of ecologist do I want to be? Hmm, let me think about that. When there are so many pressures of the world working against you. So anti-racism work is environmental work. It really is. Because the more we can heal our society, the more participation we'll have from various people in doing the great work that our world needs. So fixing societal issues directly impacts the environment, period. Well said. I agree 100%. But do you have any advice or can you give any advice for people that are striving to reach their goals, but then hitting some roadblocks along the way because of their race, gender, or even self-doubt? I do have, I do have advice. It's again, it's advice that, that I got to through my own experiences. And so I hope it's relatable to, to a wide variety of people, but really that advice is to well, I guess it's twofold. So I'll offer two things. So one is for students in particular. So for students of all different backgrounds, I really would encourage students to believe in their passion more than their performance. Because one of the hardest things about being a student is being evaluated all the time. Tests, 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 like are the name of the game. And they really run how you're looked at and how competent you seem. And if my test scores were any indication of whether or not I would be a good scientist, the answer would have been no, I would not be a good scientist. Oh, I feel you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I I didn't have high enough test scores to get into the wildlife ecology program at the University of Florida. But luckily, yeah. 
luckily animal science says I just hit the mark. <laughs> so they let me in. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it can be a real roadblock. And, and I had a lot of self-doubt even walking into that building being like, well, I wasn't good enough for one program, but I'll try this one, which it all worked out in the end very well. But sure. uh, but yeah, the testing, putting people in a box or students in a box because of their test scores is probably an archaic system that needs to be revisited, in my, in my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely archaic. I mean, if I just take high school as an example, if my high school test scores were an example, I would have, you know, I was nearly failing my math classes and doing quite poorly in my science classes. Today, I'm a scientist who uses high level math all the time. And that's why I'm saying passion over performance, because there is a way in and try not to be discouraged by what your grades are telling you. That's not to say don't do your homework and don't try. Really <laughs> right. So I am saying yeah. like, like, you know, do your best. <laughs> um, but also, you know, try not to be discouraged by, by the, that performance standard. And then the second is um, to really, you know, to know, and this is a job of scientists to do better as well, to really know that for conservation, for wildlife conservation, for protecting animals, there are so many different careers and skills that are necessary in that field. So if you are an artist or an educator or a writer or a computer scientist or a, you know, dancer, or a, I mean, the list goes on, a makeup artist. I mean, I don't know what you're interested in or skilled at. There is a role for you in wildlife conservation, I promise. It's not just, you know, traditional science and biology. Um, and, you know, if you're a historian, if you're whatever it is that you think is fascinating, it can be related to and important for wildlife conservation. So that is also something that I think really helps people, especially people from diverse backgrounds and different racial groups, see themselves properly as important contributors to this work, because there's also a diversity of skill sets and interest areas that are useful. Yes, there's a lot of ways to help animals. It's not necessarily the traditional, I have to be a veterinarian, or I have to be mm -hmm. a wildlife ecologist out in the field, getting leeches on them, <laughs> or mm -hmm. being cold or wet. Now, uh, it might be fun for some, but there's several different paths. And so I really appreciate your thoughtful answer on that. Um, and hopefully our listeners feel inspired to never give up, right? Absolutely. Don't, don't give up. Take care of yourself. I mean, I always want to say like, like, you know, there's like this thin line between giving up on a dream and taking good care of your mental health. <laughs> right. So, you know, there is this like that, that thin line, but, but there's always a way there's always a way. So don't give up on finding a way. Forward. Exactly. It's not always a linear path, right? Uh, right. Probably for few people it's linear. Uh, most have many branches that weave back and forth. And so, yes, definitely stick with it. And now lastly, Ray, before I let you go, I was wondering if you can tell me about Nature Bridge and what that is and their mission. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I'm so proud of this organization. So I, you know, in full disclosure, I serve on the board of an organization called Nature Bridge. It's a nonprofit and its mission is to create experiences in the outdoors and create some really amazing outdoor education opportunities for kids. And they really focus on kids who aren't able to access the outdoors very well on their own. And they work primarily with the public school systems to create amazing, transformative, sometimes life-changing field trips in some of America's national parks. And I'm on the board of Nature Bridge and I help to guide a lot of, you know, their operations. And I work with the big team of awesome board members. Um, and I really, you know, I, I think to myself very often, like, wow, I really could have really benefited from that program when I was a kid. Sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And my field trips had been to, you know, national parks. And if I had had a lot of environmental education opportunities for free, you know, I probably might have gotten into this field way earlier. I might, you know, be an even more impactful person today. So I truly, truly love that that's the mission of this organization. And that's what they're dedicated to. 
because it's excellent, excellent service um, to all of our communities. And it really provides opportunity for so many kids to, to, to learn a little more, to be a little bit more advanced and farther ahead in their knowledge of nature um, than before. Oh, that's so wonderful. Like getting kids outdoors, like you said, giving them experiences like that. I, I always think to myself, you never know who could be the next Jane Goodall. So Absolutely. giving them those opportunities is, is what, what the world, our futuristic world is going to need if we're going to help take care of the planet, the people that inhabit it, and of course, our animal friends, right? So, well, thank you so much. We'll put the information about Nature Bridge on our show notes so our listeners can learn more about that. And if you're uh, interested in learning more about Dr. Raywin Grant, she has a website at www.raewynngrant.com. And we'll put that on our show notes as well. And Ray, are there any other websites or social media websites platforms that we can follow you at, follow your yeah, adventures, you know, I, your yeah, podcast. Su- <laughs> I am super active on social media. I really do my best to, you know, cause I still travel and I still have awesome wildlife adventures. So, um, my handles are at Ray Wynn Grant, pretty easy on Instagram and Twitter. And those are the places you can really find me. Well, I'm uh, starting to follow you right now so we can, uh, keep being best friends and keep getting, uh, <laughs> and having these great conversations going. Uh, and we'll also put information up on our show notes about Going Wild with Dr. Raywin Grant, an amazing podcast series all about her fascinating wildlife adventures in the field, intertwined with some personal stories and feelings as well. And so that's a podcast that we can all get behind and relate to and have fun with. So please check that out uh, and give Dr. Ray Wynn Grant a follow on social media so you can stay tuned to all of her adventures. And Ray, I just want to thank you so much for inspiring me today and, and sharing with me some of your experiences. And I hope that you and I can make this an annual conversation because I think we have a lot more topics yes. to discuss. Oh, Women in science, sure. uh, making things more diverse in science, uh, and several other topics that I would love, love, love to pick your brain on. It's a date. I'm happy to. And this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can check out Dr. Ray Wynn Grant at www.raywynngrant.com. And also on our show notes, we'll have tons of fascinating information and links for you to follow. So thank you everyone for listening and have a great day. 